anniversary of the horrible thing that happened on September 11th when you had the airplanes that crashed into the towers, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and have all the people who died in those particular acts and then also the first responders. And So I think it would be fitting for us to pray, first of all, just uh, for all that have uh, suffered from that event. Lord God, we are just disturbed sometimes by the flagrant acts of rebellion against God and the idolatry that leads to such acts and such great events of uh, destruction, devastation, not only of the lives that uh, were taken, but also the lives that are left behind, the people who suffer the loss of a loved one, a friend. But Lord, it moves us to realize that there's only one answer for sin. That is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone is in need of salvation. And we pray, Lord, that you would save people who are grieving today that do not have hope in Christ. We pray that you would save and turn around uh, those who have a religion that would lead them to such a despicable act. And Lord, we pray that you'll cause us, as we have opportunity, to make them gospel opportunities to talk about the need of everyone for forgiveness of sins. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be looking at Psalm 51, but first of all, I'd like to give us some background to it. Psalm 51 is part of the book of Psalms, of course, that have a special design about them. Psalms are designed to to shape our thoughts and our feelings and to help us to express and deal with the weighty issues of life. They teach us how how to think and feel and express to God about our different Feelings are problems like loneliness and sorrow and depression and, yes, worry and even anger. They awaken our feelings to, to think about how we can interact with God about these. And they assure us, the Psalms assure us of His love and His faithfulness and His compassion and forgiveness. They help us to talk to Him. Ultimately, They work us through a process of of realizing the answers to our dilemmas. They they take us where we are, whether it's in sorrow or or experiencing the death of a loved one, or or worry about what's going on, and, and working through how to think about it, and then how to take it to God and interact with Him about whatever's going on. And ultimately, at the end of the prom process, most of the time we end with thanksgiving and praise and joy, and we need that for our hearts. The psalm before us today, Psalm 51, shows us how to interact with God when we have sinned, sometimes horribly, and we deeply regret it. The background to this psalm is important, and it's amazing that God has provided so much of a background to this psalm, and He's preserved it in the description above in your Bibles. You might see in smaller words, To the choir master, a psalm of David, 
when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Most of you are familiar with the story that was read from 2 Samuel chapter 11 by Josh just a few moments ago. That's the account. And it describes David's downward spiral, his plummet into horrendous sin. David had become a very powerful military leader. He was successful and he was the king of Israel. He's very wealthy and he used to lead his troops into battle, but this time he stayed home and he sent his general, Joab, to lead the troops. And during this opportunity of rest and reprieve, perhaps it's, it's similar to a midlife crisis where he started thinking wrongly about what his position in life was and all the blessings that he had been given by God and he sought to go down a path of sin. It started with a look. He was up on the roof of his palace in Jerusalem and he looked out upon the city and he saw Bathsheba bathing and he had her brought to him and he committed this this physical act after the heart act of adultery. She became pregnant. Footnote, God opens or closes the womb. Well, this became a very inconvenient truth that she was expecting his baby. And it was a complication for David. In our day, sadly, people might have just paid for an abortion in his case, which, by the way, we emphasize is the murder of an unborn child. But instead, David came up with a plan of deception to cover it. Her husband, Uriah, is out in the battlefield fighting for Israel, fighting for Judah. He's a Hittite who has aligned himself with the one true God. And he's, he's out there potentially dying for the protection of Israel. David, he pretended, he, he went and he sent, he sent for Uriah. And he pretended like he needed a report from the battle. But after getting the report, he, he tried to get Uriah to come home to go and sleep with his wife. But Uriah wouldn't do this. He didn't consider it right. I mean, he, all my comrades are out there in the battlefield. My friends, those I fall arm to arm with for the glory of God and with the Ark of the Covenant out in the tent stationed with them. He's a seems to be a righteous warrior for God. And he says, it's not, it's not right for me to come home and partake of the... Uh, the comforts of home while they're potentially dying. So when David can't get him to go home and sleep with his wife, he comes up with plan two. He concocts a, a plan to permanently get rid of Uriah. And once he gets rid of Uriah, he will take Bathsheba into his home, make her one of his wives, and take care of the grieving widow, perhaps making himself look good. So here was his plan. 
He had Uriah carry the letter that had his death sentence in it to Joab. Joab was told through this letter, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And that's exactly what happened. With Uriah dead, David allowed Bathsheba a time to mourn for her husband. Then he brought her into his house. He made her one of his wives. And she gave birth to this child. The chapter of 2 Samuel 11 ends with verse 27 that says, The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Perhaps one of the most understated sentences in the Bible. The introduction to this psalm then says, it says that this is an account of David after Nathan went to David. See, what happens next is that the prophet Nathan is sent by God to confront David in his adultery and murder and all that he has done. And he starts in chapter 12 with this. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Verse 5 says... Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan says, You are the man. Hard-hitting words, eh? And God tells David what's going to happen. He says there's going to be consequences that are going to affect your family. The sword will never depart from your household. And here's some of what happens as we read on in the book of 2 Samuel. We see that his son Amnon will rape his daughter Tamar. His son Absalom will kill Amnon Absalom will then lead a, re a revolt against David and he will sleep with David's wives in public in the presence of Israel, which was a fulfillment of prophecy in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 12. He would later be killed by Joab and his son Adonijah will lead another rebellion and will be executed by David's son Solomon. Consequences of sin can be devastating. So after all of this, it says in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He finally comes face to face and grips it and, and uh, admits it. And sometime after that, we don't know exactly how long, David wrote this psalm of confession. In Psalm 51, God gives us a model prayer with 
seven directions for dealing with sin. And while it comes after what might be seen as a flagrant set of sins by David, I believe it's an important process and are important elements or directions for us whenever we sin. If we make these things part of our daily lives, then we're constantly dealing with our sins, keeping short accounts, as it were, some have said. It's always good to remind ourselves that sin carries the penalty of death. We're deserving of the wrath of God, and thus it requires, one sin requires the cross work of Jesus Christ for us to be saved. The first thing to do when you have sinned is to cling to the Lord's compassion. I love that David starts with that. It's super encouraging to start with the gospel. Listen as David prays in verse 1. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And then look down at verse 9. It goes with this. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. These verses give us a marvelous look at the nature of sin and the character of God side by side. There are three words he uses to describe his sin. He uses transgressions and sins and iniquities. First, transgression highlights the fact that sin is a defense. It's a, it's a criminal act breaking the law of God. The word sin, translated sin there, refers to an offense against God. Our, our sin not only breaks God law, God's law, but it also offends Him. You see your sin is an offense to God. And iniquity also is thrown in there as kind of a general word for sin. But David knows that he has committed every category of sin. But he also knows that he can come to God who told Moses in Exodus 34-7 that he forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. It's amazing. He uses the exact same words that David does in the psalm. And David knows why God forgives. It is in his character to do so, isn't it? In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God describes himself to Moses also when he appeared to him as the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. So as David begins to deal with his sin before God, he prays for forgiveness on the basis of the graciousness, the loving kindness, and the compassion of God. But we might ask the question, how can God forgive a man like David? I was talking about the flagrant sin of a particular individual who was in jail to an unbeliever. And they said, well, good riddance to that man. 
God doesn't say good riddance. He says, come to me for forgiveness. This is who I am. I'm compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. But it, it does raise our indignation, doesn't it? When someone, I mean, imagine somebody committing adultery, your spouse committing adultery against you. And some of you have experienced that. And imagine someone killing somebody that you know and love. Or somebody bringing a great deception against you. You, you, you come to find out they weren't who they, you thought they were. In his confrontation, David says something striking, though. He says, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. And why would David have died? Well, the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was death. Boy, wouldn't that get some people's attention in this day and age if our country made the penalty for adultery death. In some places, the death penalty still is given for murder and in the Bible we see that the penalty for death or for murder taking the life of someone who's created in the image of God would be death as well his life would be taken but the Lord takes David's sin away in other words he takes it off the record David won't be prosecuted for this sin it's outrageous Uriah is dead, Bathsheba's pregnant, the baby's going to die, there's going to be devastating effects upon David's family. What kind of a righteous judge would just pass over adultery and murder? Righteous judges don't do that. Well, to understand this, we must look down to the future. We must see in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 20, 20 through 26, he says, God displayed Christ. Publicly, as a propitiation, which means an appeasement of the wrath of God, in his blood through faith, get this, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. That's what he did with David when he takes away his sin. He passed over David's sin. <clears throat> Why? Well, the passage tells us, it continues, it says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just, a just judge, and the justifier, the vindicator of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, the outrage we feel when God seems to simply pass over David's sin would be good outrage if God were simply sweeping David's sin under the rug. He's not. God sees from the time of David down through the centuries to the death of Jesus Christ, his son, who would die in David's place, and David's faith in God's mercy through Christ, though he did not have all the details... But we do see in places that he was a prophet and he, he saw a lot more than we might understand. But his faith in God to provide for him 
is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And David, sin is imputed to Christ. And Christ's righteousness is put into David's account. They were looking forward to the cross. But we on this side of the cross can be certain that whenever we sin, the Lord Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin in our place. Hallelujah. He satisfies the wrath of God that we deserve. He dies the death that we should have died an eternal suffering of death in the lake of fire, the Lord paid that penalty. He satisfies the wrath of God. Our sin is removed from our account. It's placed in His account. His righteousness is put in our account. We're justified, forgiven, and God is the just judge who punished His Son, Jesus Christ, once for all. And Jesus willingly suffered. We need to, to get that right in our heads too. That Jesus willingly suffered in our place. By the way, this, is, this story of David and Bathsheba is really one of the greatest and most striking pictures of Genesis 50-20. Where Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. When David committed adultery, when he lusted, when he deceived, when he covered it up, when he murdered or made Uriah die in battle by his orders, he meant it all for evil. But God, as strange and as complicated as it may seem, meant the adultery, the deception, the murder... For good. How? Because if we don't get Bathsheba married to David, then we don't have Solomon and we don't have Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 has Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I'll just let you go home and meditate on that a while. When you pray, know that God can make beauty from ashes. And we do well to join in David's prayer in our prayers. We, we begin our prayers over our sin, clinging to Christ, clinging to the gospel, clinging to the Lord's mercy. And as we go to God, we should cry out with contrition. What is contrition? It's a state of being humbled. It's a state of being crushed by grief over our sin and repentance. We need to be contrite. And a good place to start by to, to be contrite is to remember that you have been a sinner from your conception. Now you might think, I, could, I didn't sin in my mother's womb, did I? Well, listen to what David says in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This reminds us of the doctrine of original sin. 
all of us are descended from Adam. And, and since Adam's fall, the, the whole human race has been plunged into sin and the guilt of his sin. We're condemned first for his sin. We are one with Adam as we, and we may complain about being one with Adam, but we're not going to complain about being one with Christ, are we? That's the transfer that occurs. But as we are conceived, we come into this world with sinfully depraved hearts and we go forth, as one place says, from the womb speaking lies. Now, you might not like to think of little children as sinners, but if you're a parent, you know it pretty soon. For David, the fact that he committed adultery and murder and lied are expressions of something perhaps worse. Not that he commits sins, but that he is a sinner. That it is part of his makeup as a human being since Adam to be a sinner. It's true that believers, as believers, we're new creatures. We're born again. We have a new nature. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But we have still the capacity to sin greatly. Are we on the same level here? We all are. The Apostle Paul describes the conflict within in Romans chapter 7 verse 14 as believers doing the things that we hate. We have uh, this indwelling principle of sin that wages war against our minds. And even when we desire to do what is good, we sometimes do what is evil. And the rest of the New Testament is filled with descriptions of the sins of believers and exhortations over repenting and obeying the Lord. So we need to be humbled, contrite when we sin over the fact that left to ourselves, this is going to be our state. We are sinful. We are sinners who still, until the day we see the Lord Jesus Christ and are like Him, are going to sin. To be contrite, we also remember that God is after our hearts, not just our behavior. And so David, if you look down in verses 16 and 17... He prays this, he says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Over our sin, we need to be broken. We need a contrite heart. We need to come in low before the Lord. If we humble ourselves, He will exalt us. Many times Israel will be offering this external temple worship, the, keeping the festivals and the sacrifices and the Sabbath. But God says at many times, He says that these things are displeasing to Him, that these are a burden against Him. And in fact, an abomination in Isaiah 1.14, He says that His soul hates them. Why? Because in their hearts they committed iniquity. They delighted in abominations. They committed idolatry. And they just continued to say they were worshiping. 
God hates external worship when internally we are rebelling against him. It's so important before you come to worship corporately that you check your heart. That you repent of your sin. You take it seriously. You, you can't give heartfelt worship with joy to the Lord when you're hanging on to your sin. God's not impressed with external acts of worship. God told Saul, the king before David, who had sinned greatly against the Lord, he says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Because to obey is, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So let your heart be humbled that you're a sinner. Let it, let it break your heart and bring humility. And one thing that helps to be contrite is to consider the Lord's chastisement. It's good to reflect upon what your sin has done to you and others. These things are chastisement from the Lord. David says in verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. As a result of his sin, he lost his joy. You're going to lose your joy if you sin against God. And he feels like his, the weight of it upon him is just breaking his bones. And perhaps he even feels the physical effects of it and in another psalm of confession, Psalm 32, verses 4 and 5, David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Don't think you can rest if you're truly a believer and you're living in sin, don't think you're going to have rest before God. In the New Testament, we see in the uh, section of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just after the Lord's Supper section, because of their sin, many were weak and sick, and many slept. They died. Besides the physical maladies that David experienced, he also realizes that ultimately, and most importantly, sin affects your relationship with your Father in heaven. It affects your relationship with God. And notice what he says in verse 11. He says, Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, this is not referring to the New Testament concept of indwelling of the Spirit. And it's not talking about the possibility of losing your salvation. No, for a king, this had a, a special meaning. It was talking about a special presence of the Holy Spirit, an anointing of the Holy Spirit for the king of Israel. We see this, that the Spirit was upon Saul before David in a unique way. If you read that 
section of the Samuel books, you'll see that. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, the prophet Samuel anointed Saul's head with oil and told him that the Spirit of God was going to come upon him so that he would prophesy and so that the Lord would be with him in all of his battles and his leadership of Israel. And this happened just as he said. But after Saul disobeyed the Lord, the Lord rejected him from being king. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Well, David knows he's just as guilty as Saul, and the Lord will be perfectly just to remove him from being king and uh, to be dead, so to speak, right? And he knows that the Lord would be just in removing this special presence to be the king and to be empowered for battle and to prophesy. David was a prophet as well. And that's what David fears. And that's why he begs God that it would not happen. When you, re- when you realize you have sinned, it affects your relationship with God. You may have lost your joy. You, you may be physically uh, racked with, sin, with sickness or some kind of malady, but it mostly affects your relationship with the Lord. So once you are clinging to the compassion of the Lord and you're feeling this contrition in your heart and you're seeing the consequences of sin, now you're ready to confess. Carry out your confession. Above, we saw where David called his offenses sins, iniquities, and transgressions. He isn't specific about all of these sins, enumerating them, but they're clearly on his mind as he prays, we see in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. When you sin, especially greatly, it's like an ongoing video in your mind of how you sinned. It comes up over and over again, especially if you haven't dealt with it, if you're holding on to it. David can see it. Oh, I wish I'd never gone under that roof. I lusted. I abused my authority. I had her taken and brought to me. I committed adultery against Bathsheba and Uriah and my wives. A lot of times people, we, we don't think about David's wives in this story. And I mean, it's all convoluted to think about the fact that he even had many wives, but each of them would have been hurt by this adultery. I mean, none of them were good enough for David. He goes to someone else. And I deceived Uriah and I, I had him murdered. These things were all evil. And while, by, while being plagued by his sin, he, he thinks what it means before God as well. Look at verse 4. 
He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. I, I tell you, I'm, as I'm preaching this, I'm just praying for myself too, you know. Just pray with me. If you have sinned, you've done what's evil in the sight of God. You've sinned against him. And you are justified when you speak about me. And blameless when you judge me. When David says this, against you, you only have I sinned. This is is a poetic exclamation and emphasis of the fact that sin is ultimately against God. It just emphasizes the gravity of his sin. He certainly doesn't mean he didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba or Joab or his wives and many other people. These are the sins, iniquities, and transgressions he's talking about. But the reason they are sins is because they violate God's law. God is the primary issue when you sin. Sins against people are only sins because they sin against God. It's interesting when you ask somebody in the world, well, what do you believe is right? What do you believe is wrong? And they'll tell you, and they have this sense of morality, but nobody's consistent, it seems. And, and you ask them, well, why? Why do you hold that standard? And most of them don't really have a good answer. In fact, there is no other good answer besides that God is righteous, that He is holy, and He has determined what is right and what is wrong, what is sin against Him, and He's, he's said in His law what it is. He's put it on the hearts of people. That's the only reason they have a sense of right and wrong. We see several statements of, of David's recognizing his sin is against the Lord. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, he, he said he had done evil in the sight of the Lord. In chapter 12, verse 10, God says that David despised him. When you sin, when you sin against God, there's a fact in which you're just despising him. You're saying, God, you're not good. This isn't the best for me. You don't know what's right, God. I know what's right. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to enjoy what you say will destroy me and what Christ had to die for. Wow. That's me. David says that he sinned against the Lord in verse 13. And in Psalm 51 verse 4 is in the context of judgment. God's the judge. He's blameless. He's justified in finding us guilty. You see, this is radically God-centered repentance. That's what we need as we pray. To focus on God and what is right and his being the just judge and can rightly condemn us. And that makes Christ all the more glorious. In verse 14, he prays, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. There's a contrast there between what we just talked about. Our guilt, and David raises up this specific sin that he's guilty of, blood guiltiness. He's saying that I'm guilty of the shed blood of Uriah. 
And all of this just condemnation for our sins makes the last statement in verse 14 heightened and more glorious. He says, God, the God of my salvation. It's so important to have that last part. <laughs> because otherwise we are without hope. We need to recognize that if God is compassionate towards us, that he, if he blots out our sin and cleanses us from sin, then this is the Lord's salvation. And it reminds us that salvation is only of the Lord and it is all of the Lord. If we are still living, that's mercy. If we are living and forgiven, that is sheer mercy. And if we are living and cannot be condemned ever for our sins, it is because of sheer blood-bought mercy by Jesus Christ. What a truer picture do we have of the fact that salvation is solely of the Lord. David is praying to this God who alone can bring salvation. When he says... Salvation of the Lord, we, we look back and we recognize that none of us could ever do anything that would deserve salvation. We're all sinners, we're all guilty, God is just, right? And it just reminds us that salvation is by grace alone. It's purely a gift of God's grace. It is through faith alone. It's only by believing in the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross that we could be saved. It is through Christ alone, isn't it? All glory and praise goes to God. He's the God of my salvation. So as we confess our sins, the fifth direction we should follow here is to, to crave the Lord's cleansing. David says in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David just pictures himself as a, as a dirty, wadded up, polluted piece of clothing in need of just a deep cleansing wash. He needs to be soaked and beaten and wrung out and rinsed completely. In the Jewish society of that day, to wash and to change clothes marked a new beginning in life. And we see David, he follows that at the end of what he was dealing with. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, it tells us that David arose from the ground, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. That's the process we need spiritually. We need God to just wash us, to cleanse us from this sin and to, to be able to rise up as worshipers before God. The washing we need comes through blood. Isn't that amazing, that illustration? that Something that we would think of as blood staining a garment is used as a metaphor in the scriptures of cleansing us and making us whiter than snow. 
verse 7, David prays, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You know what hyssop was? Hyssop's the little branch that they used to put the blood at Passover when they're going to be delivered out of Egypt, they put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, and the death angel would pass over that house that was protected under the blood, and they would not die. The firstborn would not die. It was also used, we see in Leviticus, of a, a house that was unclean. And for it to be said that it was clean now, because of some sickness that had been in it, the, the priest would put, take hyssop and put blood sprinkled on the door. So David's crying out to God as his ultimate priest that he would forgive him and count him clean. And we can look back to the cross and we can rest in the fact that God has cleansed us by the blood of Jesus. We don't bear the stain of sin anymore. It's not held against us. It's not seen by God because he has given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. By our union with him, we are seen as absolutely clean. But it's still important for us to appropriate and Depend upon and claim that forgiveness that's in Christ. In 1 John chapter, 7, or chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, it says this, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ purchased our forgiveness. He has paid the full price for it. But that doesn't replace our asking, our appropriating. It is our basis for asking. So David has prayed for the forgiveness of his, the cleansing of forgiveness, but he also prays for what we might call the cleansing of sanctification. He says this in verse 10 He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you need that? You need to go to the Lord and ask for that, don't you? Create in me a clean heart. I need one that's not focused on sin. One that is not thinking about my lusts and my desires and my dissatisfactions and my ungratefulness and my complaining and all the things that are affecting me and my mind and my emotions and my will and my decisions. Sin, sin, sin. I need you, Lord, to create a clean heart. It's a prayer we should pray every day. It's one thing to be justified by God and to have our, clean, our, our sins cleanse forgiven but we also need 
the cleansing of a heart or mind or will. We need God to create this steadfast state that, that continues, that has staying power, whereby our minds are changed, we're repentant of our sin. We don't want to go anywhere near it anymore. David wants to be done with this kind of instability that has led him down that path. Thankfully, what needs to be done can be done we should cherish the Lord's power to change you. He's got power to change us. We beg, create in me a clean heart. And then we go to him and, and he has the power to do it. He's given you the resources to change. In verse 6 it says, Behold, you desire, that's the God desires truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part. You will make me know wisdom. With God's word, you have truth. You need truth in the innermost being. You, you need to read it. You need to hear it. You need to take it in. You need to condition your mind and your heart and your emotions and your will to think right. To think about the clean things and the pure things and the praiseworthy things and the things of good repute, as Paul tells us, to set our mind on these things. We need to prepare our minds for action, as Peter tells us, with these truths. We can evaluate what's right and what's wrong because we have the truth of God's word. And we need a commitment to it. And we have wisdom, that's the ability, the skill for life to be able to decide and do what is right and not wrong. He gives us these resources. As the writer of Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what needs to be done in the hidden place, in the innermost being. We see also the power to change us. In verse 12, as David prays this, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Yes, we get far from the truth. We get into foolishness, not wisdom, when we sin. But one of the most devastating things about sin personally, is that we lose our joy. There's no reason for joy if you're clinging to sin instead of Christ. But God can restore that joy. You remember the joy you had when you were first saved? It's kind of like in, biblical, in counseling sometimes, uh, I'll say to a, a married couple, do you remember why you got married? <laughs> do you remember the, the joy you had when you got married? Well, let's, let's try to get back to that. Sometimes we have to do that with our salvation, to, to look back and say, I remember that I was a sinner enslaved to my sin, in bondage to sin, and I had done this and this and this against God and against people that I know. 
when I really recognized that it was against God and that I was justly condemned and God would be just in just sending me into hell. It was at that moment that the Lord showed me the beauty of Christ and the cross. I repented of my sin and in the joy of my salvation came in. We need to remember that. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. We need to be sustained for ongoing, persevering righteousness. Well, finally, brothers and sisters, when you sin, it affects not just you, but also the community, the church. So it's important for us to cultivate holiness for the community. Repentance is not just a private act. It's a, there are public implications. You just think about how sin affects the whole church when some leader falls into adultery or some other immorality. It affects everybody. There's a weightiness. There, there's broken relationships. It devastates families. And everybody's connected in a good church, aren't they? And so we need to recognize just as sin can devastate those relationships and that ambiance, that, that joy of the whole church, also repentance can affect it. Repentance enables several things. First, we see in verse 13 that repentance can enable a believer to want to teach other people about the marvelous grace of God. If you've experienced the grace of the Lord, you've experienced the forgiveness and you have joy, then you just want to talk about the Lord. Paul or David says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your way. He wants to say, I was foolish. Here's wisdom. I was false. Here's truth. I had no joy. Here's joy. Don't do what I did. And repentance results in evangelism. The second half of verse 13, it says, And sinners will be converted to you. Christians who are honest about their sin and are humbled by the fact they've offended God and are clinging to the compassion and the gospel and the forgiveness they have are the perfect candidates for doing evangelism. For, they're not, they're not self-righteous and looking down their nose at somebody else and judging and condemning them, but they're saying, I'm a fellow sinner saved by the grace of God. Let me show you where you can find forgiveness. Repentance also makes joyful worshipers. David says in the second half of verse 14, Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Nobody sings better than somebody who has been forgiven and has repented of their sin and is just reveling in the 
joy that Christ gives because of salvation, and they know that they've put it behind them. The, the bondage has been broken. The tongue is loosed. And you can sing with abandon before God. And that creates joy in the community of believers, doesn't it? Finally, we see this: all these joyous believers coming together and it affects our corporate worship. David talks about the corporate worship of Israel. And he says now, in verse 18, he says, By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Remember those external acts of worship that Israel was doing that we talked about how God hated that stuff because their hearts were wicked. But now Israel's going to be able to come and David's going to be repentant as he leads. And Israel's going to be repentant. They're going to be worshiping and glorifying the God of their salvation. And all of these things, these acts of external worship are going to be pure. That's what I beg of you and plead with you to do is to, before you come to worship corporately, deal with your heart. Confess your sins. Revel in Christ and the gospel. This is the kind of worship that the Lord loves and delights in. Let me just ask you, are there any sins in your lives that you're concealing right now? Consider how would it affect people in your life if all of a sudden it became revealed? Be careful. God is not mocked. Be careful. You can be sure your sin will find you out. Every secret thought one day will be revealed. All of these are scripture passages. Come to repentance now. Put away your sin. And even... If you aren't holding on to a sin in unrepentance, every one of us sins, I urge you to make these kinds of directions a daily practice. Keep short accounts. And let me ask you, if you're here and you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to beg of you to consider if the Lord is convicting you of sin before Him, whether you have lied or lusted or deceived or sin with your lips, even children disobedient to parents. Whatever the case is, you have broken God's law, you have transgressed Him, you have offended Him, and you're liable to punishment, to an eternity separated from God in the lake of fire, hell. But it doesn't have to be that way. God sent His only begotten Son so that whoever believes, whoever trusts in the cross work of Jesus Christ, you believe that he died in your place, that he died as your sacrifice for your sins, he took that upon himself. If you believe in that, you trust in him for your salvation, you'll not perish, but have everlasting life. I pray you'll have the God that David had as your father, 
You have the Christ that he looked forward to as your Savior. That you have the Spirit that he's spoken about indwelling you and helping you not sin against God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for this Psalm in particular. We know that we all sin, and so this is a message for every one of us. We all need to deal with our sin, Lord. Help us to come to you to confess, humble us, Lord, before you for our sin, but restore the joy of our salvation. Sometimes when we've sinned, we, we, we never realize we would sin against you so much after you saved us, Lord. And yet sometimes that makes forgiveness sweeter because we recognize that you still love us. You still are committed to forgiving and cleansing us. We long for the day when sin will be done, Lord, and we see the Lord Jesus face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.